We are in our series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. And uh, if, I would encourage you, if you want to follow along in today's message, that I would have your Bible open. If you don't have a Bible, there are ushers that are going back and forth throughout the aisles that will pass one out for you. But I would heavily encourage you to have one. I know I've been doing the scriptures on the screen in the past. I'm going to try to do that a little bit less because I want us to be more familiar with our Bibles. Whether that means flipping pages or scrolling, uh, we want you to get a little bit more familiar with the Word of God. And I'll be giving you page numbers, so if you're not very good at finding stuff in the Bible, that's okay. We're going to have you walk through it with us. Now, uh, before we jump any further into our message, I want to ask anybody here, who here is an 80s kid? How many think the 80s was the best decade ever? How many think 80s was the worst decade ever? How many want to bring back 80s fashions? It's already back. All right. I, I, I'm an 80s kid. All right. And as an 80s kid, I, I grew up watching a lot of the 80s shows. And one movie that uh, strikes me is the movie Popeye. Anybody ever seen that movie? It was done in 1980. It had Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall in it. And I, I remember the movie as a kid. Um, and I'm, I don't know if you know the story or not, but Popeye shows up in this town called Sweet Haven. And he is looking for his long-lost father. And, and as he's doing so, he ends up some, staying in this boarding house, which happens to be uh, owned by Olive Oil's parents. And there's a party going on. Uh, it's an engagement party to celebrate her engagement to the dreaded and hated Bluto. All right? And, and she can't stand him. The only thing that she can find desirable about him is that he's a big guy. That's it. And so she decides to leave and kind of break off this engagement by running away. And as she's running away out of the house, she encounters Popeye, and they, they end up having a conversation. And then they find this abandoned baby that Popeye grabs and eventually adopts and calls Sweet Pea. And then she decides that she needs to return. And when she does, she's with Popeye, and Bluto sees her with, this, with Popeye and a baby and thinks that the baby's Popeye. So he is infuriated. He, decide, he beats Popeye up, and then he, he decides to exact this horrendous tax on olive oil's family, thus repossessing all of their earthly goods. And, and Bluto works for this guy named the Commodore, who's this mysterious figure that we don't know much about, except that he has this treasure that he holds over Bluto's head. And he's always telling Bluto about the treasure, and Bluto uh, wants that treasure but doesn't know how to get it. And, and as the story progresses, you learn this little baby, Sweet Pea, has this power of foreknowledge that can tell the future, predict races. And the character Wimpy figures this out, takes him to the track, and tries to manipulate this little baby to make him some money. Well, Bluto discovers this and sees his opportunity to get this treasure from the Commodore. So he ends up kidnapping this child and then kidnapping the Commodore, which we find out is Popeye's long-lost father, and takes him to this little island where he demands that the Commodore give him a treasure. And he encounters Popeye, and, and of course Popeye wins the day. But as this fight is going on, the Commodore finds the treasure and pulls it out. And it's amazing what he finds in this little treasure box. It's not gold. It's not precious jewels or stones. It's mementos of when Popeye was a little baby. That was his treasure. See, the, the reality is, is that many of us have earthly treasures, but there's no greater treasure on this earth than our family. I mean, really it is. That's why the scripture says that God sets the lonely in families. I mean, I know many people, they would kill just to have a, a family. But you know, while we're on this earth, and we, we, we are told that, that home is where the heart is, where our greatest treasure is. That's where home is. Home is not about the four walls. It's not about our furniture. It's not about our address or our mortgage payment. No, home is where our heart is. And that's where our greatest treasure is. And for thus, while we're, while we're on earth, our greatest treasure is where our families are. That's, but that's our temporal home. You know, we have an eternal home, and that's where our Savior is. That's the greatest treasure that heaven had to offer, is that God gave His Son for us. He is the one that makes heaven heaven, just like our children are the ones who make home home. So when we, we talk about treasure, we, we're talking today about not earthly treasure. I mean, in many of us, we don't even see, sometimes see our families as treasure. We look at money, we look at status, we look at all of these accoutrements, these things around it, the peripherals, and we fail to get to the heart of the matter. But see, God wants us to see wants us to, to think about our heavenly treasure. 
And that's who Jesus is. And He gives us the privilege of serving Him. And all that we do for Him goes on before us and waits for us there. See, really what we're learning about in this passage today is about two different kingdoms. We're talking about the upside-down kingdom, where God takes man's heart and turns it right side up. But then there's the world's kingdom, where we can get everything that we can have in the here and now. And live for status, we live for success, we live to be celebrities, we live for all of our earthly comforts, and we find our kingdom in this world. But God says, no, no, this is a kingdom that doesn't last. That there's an eternal kingdom, and I don't want you to get used to this home, because this really isn't your home. If you're a believer in Christ, this world is not your home. A couple years ago, I traveled to India. When I was traveling around, we would stay in different places. We would stay at uh, the mission organization where we were headquartered. We would stay in hotels. And you know what? There would be shelves or like drawers in these hotels. And I'd never put my, my stuff there. You know why? Because it's not my home. I was just passing through. I longed to get back to my, my family where my heart was. But see, for us as Christians, this world is not our home. And we look for our true and lasting home where our Savior is. And as such, we need to learn what it means to have treasure on earth and in eternity. And as we get into our passage today, I want, I want us to think about a few questions. First of all, who or what is your greatest treasure? What is your greatest treasure? Or who is your greatest treasure? And what or whose kingdom are you trying to build? What are you spending your hours on? What are you cultivating by your habits? What is your happiness dictated by? What kingdom are you truly trying to build? Is it your own kingdom or God's? Is Jesus your greatest treasure? And if not, may I ask, why not? See, we know that if we're honest, we're trying to build our own little kingdoms in this world because we love this world. Truth be told, we do. We love the things of this world. We crave it. But God is calling us to a higher life, to build a kingdom that cannot be shaken, His kingdom. And what He wants to do is wean us off of this world and help prepare us for the one to come. But it's going to take work. It doesn't come easy. And today we're going to see how we can prepare our hearts for our true home. That's what I invite you to today. But before that, let's pray. Father, I ask you to guide our thoughts that you direct our hearts unto you to help us to take a true and thorough examination of our own lives. We might place ourselves on your operating table. We might ask you to test us, to show us those things that are keeping us from experiencing the fullest joy that you have for us. Lord, if there's sin, help 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 us to see it for what it is. Help us to confess it and forsake it. If we are spiritually apathetic, or in a state of spiritual lethargy, I pray that you awaken us from our slumber, that we might see you for who you really are, the greatest treasure heaven has to offer. We ask your blessing in our time together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let's jump right in. In our text today, we're at verse 19. So I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles if you have one. Um, And it's on page 811 in your pew Bible. Uh, So we're in Matthew chapter 6. This is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is, his, in in essence, his inauguration address on what it is to live as one uh, that is part of his kingdom. And it's a kingdom that we have learned that is what we call already and not yet. Meaning that it has been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated yet. Um, as if he's the savior elect, if you will. And we've shared this in the past. When the president gets elected in November, um, uh, in our presidential elections, between November and January, he's known as the president elect, meaning that he has not fully taken the full powers of his office yet, but he is de facto the president of the United States. So we see this with Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again with death no longer having a hold over him, that he is victorious, that he stayed 40 days upon the earth, and then he ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for the day for the consummation of his kingdom when his enemies will be made his footstool. 
So we understand then that he is waiting until he comes again to inaugurate the full, the full extent of his kingdom. But now we see him reigning in the hearts and minds of those who have followed him as Lord and Savior. And as such, Jesus is showing us and telling us how we are to live as citizens of this kingdom. What it means to have our hearts turned right side up and to live this right side up life that he has for us. And he begins by saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, the way that this is worded in Greek, it refers to the activity of stockpiling for reserve or later use. Since that which is stockpiled is on the basis of value, there's the secondary meaning of treasure, and it's plural, that you have many treasures. And what he is doing is he is juxtaposing two different views of life. There are those who seek to build their kingdom in this world, and then there are those who seek to build their kingdom in eternity. And he's saying that there are two different kinds of of life that some people will do everything to accumulate wealth and power and status and acclaim in this world and there are those who say i'm going to forsake and deny myself in the here and now so that i can have a better resurrection that i can experience the fullness with for all that god has for us in and through christ for eternity Now, these two different lives are completely separate. You can't have both. No more that you can hold on to a boat that is pulling away from shore and stay on the the shore and stay on the boat. It's impossible. Both of these lives are headed in completely different trajectories and have complete different destinations. And what Jesus is saying is, consider the life that you are living right now. He's saying, think about it. And what that means for us is this, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we have to be willing to put ourselves on God's operating table or get an MRI and allow ourselves to go in that God can do a thorough test to see if we are healthy, if you will, a spiritual MRI. And what he's saying is, is I want you to stop and evaluate your priorities. That's the first point that I want you to write down in your notes. God desires that we evaluating our priorities. I want you to take a thorough look at your life right now. Think about it. Where are your priorities? I mean, we have a way of, of really thinking how we live, but the reality is, is that we're really doing something else. I, and I see this with my children. Children are great truth tellers. Sometimes I wish they wouldn't. Um, they say things at the worst times um, and, and just terrible things, but uh, at times, because they're so honest. They're so honest in what they say. And I, I remember talking with my kids and, and I, uh, talking about something, and I'm thinking that I'm spending a great deal of time with my kids, and I, saw, I see them playing one day. And one of my kids is sitting there doing this. They're sitting there doing this, and there's nothing there in their hands. And I said, what are you doing? They're like, I'm pretending to be daddy. And that really hurt me because it made me realize that I was spending more time on my computer than I was with my kids. And see, see, God is saying, I wanna, I'm going to get you to see this from a different perspective. I want you to look at your priorities. I want you to really see what it is you value. Now, for that to happen, it means requires us evaluating a few different things. I'm going to go through this list rather quickly. First of all, I want us to be evaluating our stuff and our shopping. Our stuff and our shopping. What does your stuff tell about you? As we've shared in here many different times, we are one of the only countries on the face of the earth that sells storage for our extra stuff. I mean, no other country in the world does that. I mean, we, and we think we don't have enough. I mean, we, we really do. We're, some of us are really addicted to shopping because we think that just getting all of this stuff is going to make us feel better about ourselves and our stuff. We have stuffitis. And really, what, what's at its root is covetousness. The Bible has a great deal to say about covetousness. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest passages that it talks about, that is in the book of Joshua chapter 7. Now, I'm not, you don't have to turn there with me right now. We're going to be turning back and forth later. But it's the story of a guy named Achan. Now, Achan 
um, was part of the Israelites. And the Israelites had been given a task to conquer the promised land. But they were given strict instructions that for the people that they did conquer, that they weren't to take any of the, the loot, but they were devoted all to destruction. And as they're, they're cleaning out some of these people and they're, they're destroying all of it, Achan comes across this beautiful coat. Beautiful coat. It's like a, a big giant mink. I mean, it's something that would cost a lifetime to buy. And he's thinking to himself, well, they're not going to need it anymore. You know, it's like I had a student one time call me. Uh, he was a student at Moody Bible Institute. And he called me up and he goes, I have, a, I have a problem that I want to talk to you about. And I said, what is it? He goes, well, we had a revival at school. I said, that's great. He said, and we had to, we, the, the speaker said, if we have any idols of our lives, that we're to bring it to the altar and leave it there. I said, that's great. That's wonderful. And he goes, well, that's kind of the, the dilemma that I'm having. I said, why is it a dilemma? He goes, well, somebody left an Xbox. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, I took it. <laughs> he goes, is that bad? It's not my idol. <laughs> It's not my idol. And he was in a dilemma about it. But here, and I said, hey, that's all right. They left it. They wanted someone to take it. That's fine. It wasn't theirs anymore. They're giving it up to God. You're all right. But in this instance, he wasn't all right. Because God said strictly, don't do it. Now, see, what happened then is after he took it, he coveted it, he took it, he hid it. He hid it in his tent. But see, the Israelites went to battle against a smaller force, and they lost, even though they were promised to win. And they're freaked out. They go before God. They're wailing and throwing dirt in the air and saying, God, why? You promised that we'd win. He goes, because there's sin in the camp. That's why you lost. They're like, sin, why? He goes, someone did exactly what I said not to do. And they went, really, who was it? He goes, cast lots. So they cast lots, and it comes down to Achan. And then Joshua comes to Achan, and he says, Give glory to God, son. What'd you do? He go, and he confessed his whole sin. But he didn't realize God takes sin so seriously that they ended up taking him outside of the camp and they executed him and his family. Now people are like, that's terrible. God takes sin extremely seriously. And it means that their family was complicit in this. They knew it as well. They went along with the ruse. See, God takes covetous seriously. Covetousness is deadly. It's deadly. We have to be evaluating our stuff and our shopping. And then our spending and our status. Our spending and our status. I don't know if you've ever heard of the story, the short story by Guy Maupassant called The Necklace. It's a great story. Great short story. Uh, I think high school freshmen read this. Um, uh, maybe I read it a different time. I don't remember. But in this story, it's about this kind of middle class family where the wife is very ambitious and she wants to be thought of as very high. And, and she has this friend who's quite wealthy. And as she's talking with her one day at her house, she notices this beautiful necklace. And, and her, there's a party that her husband's been invited to and she wants to be gorgeous there. And so she asks if she can borrow this necklace. If memory serves me correctly. And the woman says, yeah, sure, you can borrow it. Well, she goes to the party, and she's dressed to the nines. She looks gorgeous, and all the men are looking at her, and she has all this confidence in herself, and she's in high society, even though she normally couldn't afford to be there. I mean, he sacrificed to get her a really nice dress, and, and she's, she's at this party, and, and it's, it's her night. It's like Cinderella at the ball. It's a beautiful night, and as the night ends, and she's, she's just basking in the wonder of it all, and they're, they're headed back home when she notices something. Necklace is gone. Necklace fell off someplace. She's frantic. She has him go, her husband, look everywhere. They, they, they look everywhere. They can't find it. And she's like, how am I going to pay this back to her? So she has her husband go out and buy this beautiful, expensive pearl necklace, just like the one that was there. She returned it. And then they had to work off that debt. She had to take two or three jobs. She just runs herself to the bone. She becomes, I mean, years go by and they're still trying to pay off this debt. And, and she's now wasting away trying to pay for this necklace that she lost years ago. I mean, like over a decade goes by. She's a, just a, a, a a small fraction of the woman that she was, and she decides to confess to this woman that she had lost her original necklace and she had to buy one. So she goes to this woman, and now she's, her clothes are all tattered. She's even worse off than she was before this whole process started. And she says, you know, I have to tell you that I had lost the original necklace, and I had to 
to buy you a whole brand new one. She goes, that old thing? That was just a piece of costume jewelry. See, the point was, is that she thought it was real. And then she spends, she actually buys the real one, when the reality was, it wasn't a real one to begin with. And then she wastes her life then trying to, to make this up. See, we have this preoccupation with status and how much we spend on something. And what the reality is, it's an illusion. It really is an illusion. And we have to forsake status if we're truly going to be the servants that God wants us to be. It's, it's like the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is in the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 5. Again, don't have to turn there on this one. We will be turning in a few, to a few other places momentarily. But in this story, you have this couple who had some means. They decide to sell a property and give the proceeds from that property, that sale, to the church. But as they sold the property, they decided to keep back a portion for themselves. They tried to fix the books, if you will, and make it look like they were giving more than they had really done. And so they go before Peter and they, they say, hey, this is, what, this is for you, man. This is all for you. But we're keep it, they kept it back a portion for themselves and made it look like they were better than they were. And Peter goes, why do you lie about this? You don't lie to men, you're lying to God. And then they, Ananias dies instantaneously right there. Instantaneously. Because see, they were so preoccupied with status that they were willing to manipulate godliness for the sake of their sinfulness, their sinful preoccupation with status. And then, of course, Sapphira comes in later. He asks her the same question. She corroborates his story. She's, she's complicit in this, and she is executed and killed instantly as well. See, God takes his name very, very seriously. And we have to ask ourselves, how much are we willing to do? How much are we willing to spend? How much are we really preoccupied with status? See, the reality is, is all of this stuff comes back to two things, security and significance. That's what we have to ask ourselves. When the Israelites, when Jesus is saying to them, you're putting up your stuff for yourselves, it's finding security in your stuff, in your status. You find your security and your significance in that. Allow me to ask you a question. Where do you find your security and your significance? Is it what other people say about you? Is it getting other people to notice you? I was telling my daughter, uh, we were having a conversation um, about status. Junior high is the most place where it's completely obvious who's in and who's not. Remember, how many of you liked junior high? Yeah, no one raises their hand. Well, two people. You were the cool people. Okay, the rest of us don't, didn't like it because of you guys. All right? Junior high was hard. It was really hard. You're all awkward. Your voice is cracking all the time. You know, I had teachers that called me Shaggy from Scooby-Doo because my voice cracked all the time. Okay? And I just remember there, but I wanted to be cool. I remember wanting to be cool. And you'd get the, the newest clothes. And, and I remember at my, my small town, we would host the county fair. And that's where all of the teenagers went. So, of course, I had on my best clothes. And I wanted people to notice me. And I would just walk back and forth through the fair. Like, pay attention to me. I mean, we've all done this in some way, shape, or form, have we not? Come on, don't say I'm the only one. Right? We are. We, we're concerned. We are. We want a status about the nicest car, how cool it is. We want that. But God is saying, no, you have to shun status. You have to look toward me. Don't put your hope and security and significance in those things. See, that's worldliness. Our worldly says, get, 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 get. Who's got the most power? Who's the prettiest? Who's out there the most? Who has the most YouTube hits? But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm calling you to a different life than what the world has to offer. That you find your security and your significance in me. Ultimately, we must evaluate our selfishness and our sacrifice. Our selfishness and our sacrifice. How much are you willing to give? How much are you willing to be inconvenienced? We don't like to be inconvenienced. I remember one time I was at Midway Airport getting ready to catch a flight, and we wanted to grab some food at McDonald's. Don't ever go to the McDonald's near Midway. Worst McDonald's ever. Okay? How long are you supposed to wait in line at McDonald's? 
especially drive throughs What? Five minutes, two minutes? Hey, I was there 20 minutes, right? And it felt like I was like at a cattle car, you know, in, in World War II. It was so bad, and I'm getting more and more angry, and I realized that I have an idol of convenience. I don't like it when, when things don't happen the way they're supposed to. Are anyone else here like that? I mean, we really don't like to sacrifice. We really are pretty selfish at our core. I don't know how many of us are willing to admit that, but I was talking to my wife, and you know, marriage is where you find out how selfish you really are. You really find that out in marriage. And when I have couples come to me, one of the things that I find out is because ultimately one is selfish, they're not willing to understand the other person. You have to sacrifice yourself. So we must ask ourselves that, how selfish are we? How much are we willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God and build up our treasure in heaven? And that means we need to be evaluating our priorities. Evaluating our priorities. Now, let's go back to our text. Let's look at verse 22. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, I've read this verse, I don't know how many times in my life. And every time I would read it, I would go away scratching my head going, I have no idea what that means. Until I started looking at it in context. We have to understand the verses directly preceding it, and then the verses following it to get the full flavor of what Jesus is trying to say to us. And do a little bit of study. We would find out that Jews had a way of understanding the eyes. There was the good eye, and there was the evil eye. How many ever had your parents said, give you like the evil eye? Anyone ever had that? Okay, for, for, as a kid, I, I remember one day my, my brother looked at me and he was wondering why I was looking at the back of my mom's head, flipping it back and forth. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to find if mom has where the eyeballs are. Because my mom always said she had eyes in the back of her head. And I was convinced of that. Um, but the Jews had a way of talking about the good eye and the, and the evil eye. Now, the good eye was the clear eye if you will, where there wasn't anything that was keeping light from coming in. But the evil eye was when it had like a dark film over it, and then everything that would come in would magnify that darkness, if you will. Now, what Jesus is saying there then is this, as we look at it, the eye is the lamp of the body. It's what we take in. He's talking about we, what we see. What we see, and when, you're, when your motives... It's, and it's a metaphor. When your motives are clear, when you are letting the teaching, the light of Christ come into your life, that's cleaning the lens. And then the light comes into you, and then you feel the, the, the joy of that light being in your home. You're illuminated. You're walking in the light. The light is the teaching of Christ. But when your eye is bad at the entry point, meaning that you are giving yourself over to sin all the time, then the darkness in you is magnified intensely. So what Jesus is saying to us is this. We have to, in essence, clean this eye. We have to be adjusting our perspective. Write that down. That's number two that I want you to write down. Adjusting our perspective. It's like driving with a dirty windshield in summer after you've been driving in the country. Right? I don't know what it is, but I think that I have this this magnet for bugs in the summer. If you're driven out in the country, when you get done, it's bugs everywhere. Or you get that smudge on your windshield and you are too lazy to reach out and wipe it off. That you drive with your vision clouded. And see what God is saying is, no, you've got to clean that to really see everything clearly. You need to make sure that you are washing your spiritual lenses with the Word of God. Washing your spiritual lenses with the Word of God. Now, I like coffee. How many other coffee drinkers are here? Coffee, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Do you clean your coffee maker? Or does your coffee maker grow things in it that you get like it just gives good taste? Good a little taste with it, right? Right? Now, I have this, my coffee maker has this, I mean, it's really idiot proof. It says clean. It blinks at you like, hello, stupid. Clean your coffee maker. Then how do you clean your coffee maker? What do you do? You put vinegar through it, right? You run it through a couple times, heats it up, and it cleans it out and gets rid of all of the sediment and the buildup. See, what we need to be doing with the Word of God is taking it in to clean us because the residue of unbelief builds up. 
And when we're taking in the Word of God on a continual basis, we can see the world clearly. See, when we don't take in the Word of God, when we're not reading it and letting the Word of God read us, that's when we start going over here to worldliness and wanting what the devil wants. Because, see, God is trying to renew us, to show us the reality of who we are before Him and what it means to have joy in life. But when we quit reading the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to read us, then worldliness has a tendency to build up in our lives. So we need to make sure that we are washing ourselves with the Word. If we're going to adjust our perspective, we cannot do so on our own without God's revelation to our situation. God has to speak to us through His Word. Now secondly, we have to make sure that we are praying purposefully. Praying purposefully. We don't like silence. See? We don't. Why? Why don't we like silence? Is it because we're afraid that stuff will come to the surface? That God will show us stuff about ourselves that we don't like? See, when we go before God, when we get on our knees, When we disquiet our thoughts, our minds begin to wander. But then God brings us back to himself and he starts showing us a lot of the things in our lives that we know are wrong. See, if we're to keep our perspective, then it means continually going before God so that he might heat us up by his spirit and bring those impurities to the surface, we might forsake them. See, one of, that's one of the things that prayer does is God begins to change us when we're in His presence, God begins to change us. We need to be praying purposefully. Next, we need to make sure that we are submitting to the Spirit. Submitting to the Spirit. Now, when God brings something to your attention, we must, or bring something to our attention, we must listen to what He says and trust in Him. We are master deceivers. We deceive ourselves all the time. That's one of the reasons we have to go back to the Word of God. But when God shows us something, what do we do then? When God shows you something that you are to do, what do you do? Do you ignore it? I mean, it's like, it's like getting your cell phone and you see that call that you just don't want to talk to that person. What do you hit? Ignore when I call you, what do you do? <laughs> Thanks, Roy. At least it wasn't my wife. But it's true. We do. We have a tendency when God calls, He speaks to us, we hit ignore. We can't hit ignore. We must take His call. We must take His call. And then when He shows us something, we must submit to the Spirit. See, we have this tendency to hold on to our sin and find every way to excuse our sin. God is trying to get our attention, but we keep putting Him on ignore or on mute. We must continually listen to the Spirit of God, and we cannot continue living in a state of sin because God does not approve of it. And a true believer will not want to live in a state of sin continuously. We won't. Now, this is where I want you to turn with me. If you have a pew Bible... I want you to turn with me to page 1022, 1022. For those who don't have that, it's 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, if you're not that familiar with your Bible, 1 John is near the end, the back of your Bible. But 1 John chapter 3. Now, John is writing to, obviously, these believers who thought that you could continue in sin and still be a follower of Jesus, continue in a state of sin. And he corrects that. So page 1022 in your pew Bible, uh, 1 John chapter 3, 4 through 10. Holy Spirit to John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, referring to Jesus. And in him... There is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, 
what he means there, it's not that you won't ever sin. It's the idea of living in a state of sin. Of knowing that you're in sin and you continue to stay in that. He goes on. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, of staying in sin. For God's seed abides in him. His spirit is trying to conform you to the image of his Son. And the Son of God will not take that. The Spirit of God will be grieved when we stay in sin. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. See, the true believer will be so convicted of his sin or her sin that he or she will be miserable and will have to continue to live in that state of disobedience before God. I'm reminded of Bath, David and Bathsheba, and I want you to turn with me to page 462, 462 in your few Bible, or Psalm 32. Psalm 32 the book of Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible. But Psalm 32. And this is David. After he had sinned, the Spirit of God is within him. And he is, has sinned against Almighty God. And he has been struck to the core by his disobedience. And this is what he says. Psalm 32 is a record of his confession before God. So Psalm 32, 1 through 5, page 462. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Not trying to deceive himself. Then he goes on in verse 3. For when I kept silent, meaning he wouldn't repent of his sin, he wouldn't confess it and forsake it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, if you are living in a state of sin, God's going to convict you by the power of His Spirit and will not let you rest until you confess it and forsake it and turn away from it. Because if you're a true believer in Christ, God's seed is in you, His Spirit is conforming you and transforming you into His Son, then you won't rest until you are transformed and you are made right with God. Don't hold on to your sin. Don't try to excuse it. Remember, there is a sin of commission and omission. Commission is the sin of actively doing it. Doing that act that God's Word speaks against. Omission is failing to do what God has commanded you to do. To take care of the hungry, the widow, the orphan, the refugee. We must make sure that we are not committing either one of those and realize that God's grace is sufficient for us. That He gives us the gift of grace. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That there's forgiveness. And you might sense that in your life right now. Well, understand that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That God gives His grace to you. It's not about working out, I mean, working for or earning our salvation, but trusting in what God has already done and knowing that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And if we're going to have our perspective adjusted, we can't let sin reign in us, but we must submit to the Spirit's promptings. Now, how else can we adjust our perspective? Well, we must make sure that we are dying daily. Dying daily. What does that mean? It means taking up your cross. Jesus said, if anyone is to follow me, he must take up his cross. The idea was dying to ourselves. 
It's something that we have lost in our day and age because we are in a world of excess. And yet God is calling us to deny ourselves for His glory. That we are to consider ourselves crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave Himself for us. Galatians 2.20. It's understanding that I am put to death my sinful flesh, that the, the Spirit of God, that child of God, that might live and reign and manifest Himself in me. We must put to death the misdeeds of our sinful nature, our flesh, that fallen part of us that is unredeemed, that is at war with God. And then we must live by the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God is birthing the Son of God in us. Now, we have to die to many things. Many of the desires of our flesh and many things that this world has to offer, that status, that finding our security and our significance in what we have, how we look, the power we have been given. You know, it's interesting. This is one of the devil's tactics. The devil seeks to destroy us through God's blessings. Let me say that again. The devil seeks to destroy us through God's blessings. Now, what do, what do I mean by that? It means this. We are one of the most blessed nations on the face of the earth. We have more modern things and conveniences and opportunities than almost any nation on, in the world. And we have delighted in our gifts more than we have the giver. We have turned our creaturely co- comforts as of means of contentment. We've traded in Christ-likeness for cultural com- co- compromise and comforts. See, we take these blessings and we delight in those and we lose track of the one who gave them to us. And see, the devil is fine with us going about our life and, and going to church and, and he will give us so many blessings that will keep us from seeking his tr- God's face. See, the devil wants us to do that. He wants us to delight in all of these things and good gifts and blessings that he'll take us away from praying and denying ourselves and becoming more like Jesus. So we have to forsake our sin and realize, acknowledge that we are stewards of these gifts, but don't delight in the gifts more than we do the giver. Next, we need to make sure that we keep our eye on eternity, eyeing eternity. We must think in the long term. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't look at the temporal, look at the eternal. Or perhaps you can think of it this way. Short-term loss, long-term gain. Most of us live the other way. Short-term gain, long-term loss. We must make sure that we are eyeing eternity and understanding that eternity is a long time, a lot greater than what we're, this world that we're in right now. We need to make sure that we are doing these works. These other treasures that we build up are being obedient to Him and doing the acts and things that He has asked us to do in His Word. And one of those things is telling other people about Him. Now let me ask you a question. Why don't you, if you are a believer in Christ, tell other people about Jesus? You tell everybody about your favorite movie. Tell everybody about your favorite book. Really cool video you saw on YouTube. Why do you tell other people about Jesus? You know, we issued a challenge about a year ago, almost 11 months ago. And it was called Finding 12. And we encouraged this body to engage in 12 conversations, to start 12 conversations of faith. Now, I didn't say that you'd get out the entire gospel. I said to start a conversation. And we we challenged people to take a pouch that was right back on the sound booth, and it's got 12 stones in it. And each one symbolizes a conversation. And then we would, every time we'd have a conversation, we'd bring it in, we'd write that person's name on it, and then we would stick it in that glass case in the rear of the sanctuary. Now, if you'd go back and look at that, how filled is it? It's been almost a year. It's only a quarter way filled. Why? Because we don't care enough to tell people about Jesus. It's an indictment. Now, I understand people say, hey, I haven't done the challenge, but I'm talking to people about Jesus. That's good, fine. But for those who took up the challenge, why haven't you done it? Is that indictment against us that we're really not amazed by who he is? 
where we might say, I don't know, I'm fearful, there's all these things that build up. Let me tell you, you're not to save them. You're to cast the net. See, Jesus has this interaction with Peter in Luke chapter 5 where he, he gets in Peter's boat and he starts teaching the crowds and then he tells Peter, hey, let's cast off from shore and go out into the deep and I want you to, to, to fish, throw out your nets. And Peter's like, okay, Jesus, you're not a trained fisherman. I am. I do this for a profession. And I've been doing it all night and there's nothing. Nothing's biting. And as, as he's saying that, he's like, he realizes who he's talking to. <laughs> and he goes, you know, but because you say so, I'll do it. So he goes out and he I, I kind of wonder if he's going through the motions, what was going through his head. Is he just doing it for Jesus? Like, here, I'm throwing it in now. And then he hears, <laughs> he hears, a, wait, what? I feels a tug on the net. And he starts pulling it in. He realizes he's got this massive haul of fish. And he has to call the other boats over to come in and help him haul in this massive amount of fish. Now, God doesn't call us to make the fish get in the net. He calls us to cast the net over. Start the conversation as casting the net. Cast the net. Start a conversation of faith. Out yourself as a Christian. Invite him to church. That's part of the conversation. Just start it. Build a relationship. Care enough to share. If we're truly going to change our perspective, then we need to put ourselves out there. And that means doing what God wants us to do. That means eyeing eternity, keeping eternity in mind that our treasure is not of this earth, but it's in heaven. It's going on ahead of us. But not only are we to keep an eye on eternity because we can say to ourselves, hey, that's eternity. What about in the here and now? What am I supposed to do in the here and now? Here's what we do. And the scripture talks about it. The Bible talks about everything about our condition. We make sure that we are cultivating contentment in the here and now. That's the letter F. Cultivating contentment. Cultivating contentment. Now I want you to turn with me to page 993. If you have a few Bible, 993. 93, and that's 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. Um, and as you're turning there, this passage talks a great deal about, uh, is more of a further explanation about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6 that we're studying now. And this is Paul writing to the young Timothy, and he says to him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10, page 993, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Why aren't we content? Why not? I think one of the reasons is, is we compare. We're continually continually comparing. I've shared this story several different times, but I I learned this firsthand in fifth grade. Fifth grade. Um, I needed a new pair of shoes. So we went to Walmart, got a pair of Pro Wings. Anybody ever had Pro Wings? Anybody? There you go. Thank you, Gary, for caring enough to admit it. But we did. We had Pro Wings, right? And, but if you had Pro Wings, that said two words, or one word with a hyphen, Walmart, right? And so I, went to, I remember going to school, and that's at the age that you think your shoes make you fast, right? Do you remember that? I got new shoes. I'm going to be super fast and super cool. And I remember showing off my new shoes until my friend Carl, Carl Bursa, God bless Carl, he came over to me and he goes, your shoes stink. I was like, how dare you? These are brand new shoes. These are pro wings. I'm going to be fast like an eagle. And he goes, you need, and he thumbed his shoe down on the log roll and goes, you need Nikes. And I didn't know what Nike was, but I knew that suddenly my pro wings didn't look so good. Now, why? Why? Why was it that I couldn't be content with my pro wings? Why did I suddenly have to have those new Nikes? Because I was comparing myself. I was comparing. See, I was content. I was happy until someone showed me that there was something better, and suddenly mine didn't look so good. See, we compare all the time. Look at their car. 
look at their house. What about their house? What it's like? I remember as a kid, I'd go and visit my friends' houses, and I'd come home, and my mom would always ask me the question, what is their house like? What is their house like? Does your mom do that? Do you do that? Because, see, we're constantly comparing, and God's saying, no, godliness with contentment. I like how Tony Evans says it. He says this, contentment is being just as happy driving that Mercedes as you would be if you had to drive that jalopy from college. In both cases, you'd have a ride. Contentment is taking as much pleasure in that big $300,000 house as you would a two-bedroom apartment. In both cases, you have a roof over your head. Contentment is appreciating that T-bone steak as much as you would a hot dog. In both cases, you're not starving. Contentment is being just as satisfied with the designer outfit as you would be with an outfit from the thrift store. In both cases, you have clothes on your back and you're not naked. Contentment is realizing that God has met your needs. Don't compare. Don't compare. Let's go back to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve both God and money. See, we learn from the scriptures that he who sins is called a slave to sin. Turn with me in page 9 to 943. 943, that's Romans 6. For those who don't have a pew Bible, Romans chapter 6. Flip over or scroll down. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. And this is Paul writing to the church of Rome in Romans 6, 16. And he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, he is, he is elaborating on what Jesus' words are there. He's saying that when we submit and we put ourselves to money, or to really that's idolatry, and we become a slave to that, so we can be a slave to sin, or we can be a slave to the Savior. And this one is a merciless slave owner that will never be satisfied. But ours is a merciful Savior who gives us satisfaction in and through Him. He gives us true peace. Now, what is Jesus saying to us in verse 24? You can't serve both God and money, so don't even try. Serve God. We must serve God passionately. Serving God passionately, with passion. You ever been passionate about something? How many of you are passionate Cubs fans? How many of you are passionless Cubs fans? How many of you are White Sox fans? You need Jesus. Okay. How many of you are Bears fans? How many of you are Packers fans? I'm going to throw up. We're on Inkley Oak Church. We're to be serving. We're not, we're, you know where the word fan, fanatic means fan, means something that's really passionate about something. And, and the fact of the matter is, people are more passionate about sports teams than we are the Savior at times. We need to be more passionate about the Savior. And we're to serve God with passion. It's not just a Sunday thing, it's a whole life thing, it's a transformational thing. As C.S. Lewis said, I mean, we've got to keep our eye on the prize. C.S. Lewis said this. I love C.S. Lewis. Aim at heaven. Aim at heaven. Keep your eye on God, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. Aim at heaven, and you get, you'll get earth thrown in. And you could say it this. You could say, aim it at the treasure in heaven, aim at Christ, and you'll get all those things taken care of, which we're going to actually talk about next week, to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and everything else will be added to you as well. Matthew 6.33. But if you aim at this world, at money, at the treasures of this earth, you'll get nothing, because that won't give you anything. It promises everything, but delivers nothing. Now, if we're to serve God passionately, then that requires us pursuing Him wholeheartedly with all of us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. It is not a Sunday morning thing. It is an all-of-life thing. All-of-life thing. So pursuing wholeheartedly, 
Next, we must make sure that we are holding loosely. Hold all of these earthly treasures that we have with an open palm, with an open hand. Let God take them and do with them what he wishes. Don't hold too tight because God has a tendency to rip it out and that's going to hurt. He wants us to hold it loosely before him. Thirdly, I'm going to go through these rather quickly. We need to be living simply. Living simply. I'm going to say a word that most people dread. How about try downsizing? Downsizing. Get rid of your stuff. In our small group this week, as we went through this passage, I gave a challenge to our small group. We have to give away seven things this past week. It has to be your own stuff, not your spouse's stuff, or your children's stuff. Okay? We found that out in a small group. Of course, one of us in a small group said, can I give away my children's things? Can I give away my husband? <laughs> no. Give away seven things. Seven things. To simplify your life. Live simply. We don't need all that stuff. Not a lot of that stuff. You know what? I'm going to make a confession. I don't have a flat screen TV. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. My kids are like, everybody has flat screen TVs. No, they don't. Look. (laughs) We don't. Does that mean I don't want one? No, but I'm not going to go out and get one because everybody else does. I mean, I don't know about you, but my grandparents had their TV for like 30 years until the thing like, I mean, I don't know, it started sparking when you turn it on. You'd smell dust. It was warm up around you. I mean, I could, I could cook food on the top of that thing. It was that big old box one, you know what I'm talking about? Had like a big shell on it. I mean, it was like a central fixture for the entire house. And now it's like we have to have the thinnest and sharpest thing. No, we don't. Live simply. Live simply. And then make sure that we are giving generously. I only have a couple more points. Giving generously. That's a cure to, to cure materialism and having treasure of this earth. Give it away. Give it away. Give generously. Turn with me to page 956, 956, or 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, Paul is writing about the Macedonian church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, page 956. 956. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Now, how many of us in this room feel poor? You feel poor? Okay. I mean, be honest. Do you feel poor like you don't have enough? Or come on. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Now, what does Paul say here? What kind of poverty were they in? Extreme. They're in extreme poverty. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They still gave generously. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. To us. See, they wanted to sacrifice themselves. They understood that treasure, that their treasure was not of this earth, but was in heaven. They were willing to sacrifice themselves to give generously. Are you willing to give generously to help other people? Give to the kingdom of God? You say, it's my money. Oh, be careful of that attitude. God gave you the ability to have and make that money. He can give it and he can take it away. Next, we must make sure that we are obeying joyously. Yes, we are to look for eternity, but we're also to live in the present. And obeying this command by living for treasure in heaven brings it with it the joy of being in right relationship with God. There is something sweet to the soul when we know that what we are doing, we are, or when we are doing what God has made us to do. And obedience does have, a jo- have joy as its byproduct. Many of us are so guilt-stricken and impoverished of soul that we cannot receive all that God ha- the Father has for us in Christ in the present. Lastly, we must make sure that we are waiting expectantly. Waiting expectantly. Turn to page 1007, Hebrews chapter 11. Page 1007. This is the last scripture I'm going to have you look up. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 16. This is known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. 
And, and we, we, have, uh, we read this, page again, 1007, I'm in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah, his wife, herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, he was 100 years old, his wife was 90 when she conceived, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many of the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're putting their heart in a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So what is He saying? He's saying that God has prepared for them a place where their true heart beats. It's a heavenly destination that they were willing to sacrifice in the present so they might celebrate in the future. Sacrifice in the present to celebrate in the future. Home is truly where the heart is. We must remember that we only have one life. I want to read a poem to close because this, it's about one life. It's by a guy named C.T. Studd. He was, a pat, uh, he was a missionary, British missionary, between the 19th and 20th centuries. He was a missionary in China, India, and Africa. And he wrote a poem. It goes like this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each one with its burden, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Tate, Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. Do you have Christ as your treasure? Are you trying to build up your kingdom on this earth or in eternity where Jesus is? Only one life. It's soon we pass. You can't take it with you. No matter how hard you try, you can't. 
but what we done for, do for Christ goes on ahead. And then there is a treasure awaiting for us. First of all, it's Christ himself, the greatest treasure. Then he allows us to experience the blessings that years of obedience ended in great works of righteousness for his glory and our joy. And we will experience and taste the fruit of that joy. Now you might be here today and say, I don't know Christ. I won't experience that. My treasure's on this earth. Well, you can truly, you can have him as well. It means repenting of your sin, receiving him as Lord and Savior, that God has promised to all of those who come to repentance and faith that he will give eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and peace with God for those who turn from their sin and receive him as Lord and Savior. I would encourage you to do so. The scripture is clear that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be transformed. That if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with our mouth that we confess and believe but it's with our heart we are justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. Won't you receive him? Won't you build up, begin building up that treasure in heaven and go to where he is, the truest gift, greatest gift that heaven had to offer that was given for us, for our sins, that he died on the cross for you and for me, that we can have life with him in eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the time that we had celebrating the little young ones that were dedicated. I thank you for your word that speaks to the reality of our condition, that you have not left us alone, that you have shown your will through your word, that we might know how to live in a way that is glorifying to you and that gives us peace and joy in the present. Lord, truly help us to apply this truth and help us to lay up treasure in heaven. Because we know where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Lord, you are our greatest treasure. Help us to see you, to love you, to commit our lives to you this day as we go forth into a world that is at war with you. Help us to cling to you in your promises, living for an audience of one, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.